touchless, prepare our hearts and minds to hear from God's word. I want to welcome everyone today to worship in uh, whatever congregation, whatever location or campus you are in. And I, I do want to highlight something that all of your campus pastors have been highlighting uh, this weekend, and that is this coming Wednesday is a celebration like none we've ever had. And I'd really love to see you there. Debbie and I are looking forward to that celebration. It's not a celebration of any person or of what anyone has accomplished. This is a complete celebration of God, of his grace and goodness to this church. And it's not mostly looking back, although we will do just a little bit of that. It's mostly looking outward and forward. So I think you're gonna have a blast, and everyone who comes will receive a, a, a small gift that will be yours to take with you. I think it's something that you will treasure and get some usage out of as well and will be a helpful spiritual tool in your life. So let's come together, seven o'clock, this coming Wednesday. This is the last time you'll hear me mention this, obviously, because it's right upon us, and uh, we'd love, love to see you there as we celebrate, celebrate 25 years of grace. You know, uh, there are a lot of reasons I love this church. When people ask me, why do you just... Think so highly of this church, Grace Fellowship, I usually quickly blurt out, well, it's the people. It's the people. The most amazing people I've ever known are in this church, and that is true. But one of the many reasons that I am just crazy about this church, Grace Fellowship, is that it's really more like a hospital for sinners than it is a hotel for saints. And I think that's the way it ought to be. You know, when you look in the scriptures and you see the people that God used, whether you're looking at the Apostle Paul or Moses or, or Joshua or King David or Doubting Thomas, whoever you're looking at, mostly these people are deeply flawed people, broken. And yet God met them where they were and by his grace chose to use them. And that's our story, isn't it? God loves to do makeovers. In fact, you could say that our great God specializes in extreme life makeovers. And so it's one of the reasons I love this church because we're all a part of that story that God is writing. And that should be good news to you today. If you, like me, see yourself as I see myself as a broken and extremely flawed person, That should be great news because God meets us where we are and he changes us from the inside out. Well, there's perhaps no more brilliant illustration of that than the story we're going to look at today. It's found in Luke's gospel, chapter 7, and it really highlights the amazing grace of God to overcome our past, our hurts, our habits, our hang-ups, to deal with the guilt in our lives. And so let's go on this journey together. I invite you to take the back of your bulletin if you'd like and and jot down some notes and ideas. I want to sum it up with one statement which I'll then unpack. Here's the statement. Jesus wants us to experience positive guilt 
that leads to genuine repentance, which results in total forgiveness and leads to inner peace. Now, that's quite a statement, packed with meaning, and in our time together, we're going to unpack each of the key parts of it. Our story begins like this in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, one of the things I want you to notice first today is that Jesus wants us to experience positive guilt. Now, right off the bat, some of you go, Pastor Rex, dude, those two words, positive and guilt, are like an oxymoron. They just don't go together. And perhaps you think that because you may have been so immersed in the culture, trained by this culture to believe that all guilt is bad. We speak of it that way. We talk about debilitating guilt, toxic guilt, destructive guilt, false guilt, Catholic guilt, and the list goes on and on and on. But I find it very interesting that in our story today, even though this woman had been in Christ's presence before, she enjoyed being in his presence because he elicited from her this positive guilt in her life. So when people ask me, Pastor X, is guilt good or bad? I say, it depends. What kind of guilt are you talking about? So let me explain that for just a moment. First of all, let's acknowledge that definitely some guilt is bad. It is harmful and destructive. Psychologists today speak a lot about toxic guilt and its repercussions. Dr. Robert, or excuse me, Albert Ellis, the founder of Rational and Emotive Therapy, wrote a little booklet in which he said, there is no place for the concept of sin in psychotherapy. And he explains that the goal of psychology, from his point of view, is to eradicate the concept of sin because he says that most emotional problems stem from toxic, irrational guilt. What about that? There are certainly, there is certainly negative guilt. People may feel guilty for things that are totally innocent. I know people who feel guilty if they play a board game or a game of crazy eights with cards. I know people who feel guilty if they sleep in one morning a week or maybe eat a pint of ice cream or if they don't work out as they feel they ought to. Some people have such a sensitized conscience that they feel guilty at the least little thing. If you're working on your computer screen and it says you have conducted an invalid you know, operation, you want to go turn yourself into the authorities at that point. Like, I'm guilty. I've got guilt. Toxic guilt may mean feeling guilty for things that God has forgiven you of long ago. 
You know, as a pastor, that's one of the saddest things to me of all. I meet dear people, wonderful people in our church who strayed away from God years ago, went through a rough season and engaged in some kind of sinful activity, but even though they've confessed it and God's forgiven them, they still feel guilty. What a tragedy. Because God has forgiven that. It's gone. It's in the past. Some parents seem to specialize in making their children feel guilty. They're adult children. If they don't call them every day or don't include them in their vacation plans. There's a popular t-shirt that reads, my mother is a travel agent for guilt trips. So we need to acknowledge there's this toxic guilt. And sadly, sometimes people feel guilty for things that weren't even their fault. I've talked to innumerable victims of sexual abuse, all different ages. It's amazing that often people who were abused as children somehow look back at that and think, well, I'm guilty, it was my fault, or I did something to cause it, or I should have done more to stop it. Toxic guilt like that is always destructive. It produces everything from depression to feelings of worthlessness, low self-esteem, inferiority. Jesus doesn't want us to feel guilty when we shouldn't feel guilty. I hope we're really clear on that. However, with that hopefully clearly understood, I think we live in a culture where it's often overlooked today that there's such a thing as healthy, positive guilt. When Adam and Eve did what God said not to do, guess what? They felt guilty. They started hiding from God and trying to avoid God. They felt this guilt. You know why? Because they were guilty. And guilt is a basic mechanism that God builds within the person. It's meant for positive reasons. It's supposed to spur us on to do the right thing, to motivate us to change. On your car, if you see a little red light come on that says maintenance needed, is that a bad thing or a good thing? You say, well, I don't like to see that, so I guess it's a bad thing. No, that's a good thing. You, you, you don't want to be like that woman I heard about recently who, who had that light come on and she put a Band-Aid over it so she didn't have to look at it, okay? You don't want to be that person because that light is a symptom of a deeper problem within the engine that you'd better take care of now or it will cost you later. Positive guilt is like that. Positive guilt feelings are warnings. Something is spiritually wrong inside, and you need to act. You need to do something about that. A junior high student cheats on a test, and he gets back his grade, and he makes an A, but there's no sense of pleasure in that because he's riddled with guilt. He knows he didn't earn that grade, and he feels so bad, he thinks that maybe he ought to tell the teacher. Or here's a business executive and she kind of cooks the books and fixes things and, and misrepresents some of the data in order to make the company a lot more money. Well, it succeeds. 
In fact, she does it magnificently. She lies, she covers up, she twists the data, but inside she's riddled with guilt. And even though people see her outwardly as a success, inwardly she knows the real story and she can't get it off her mind. She says, I've done wrong and it's eating me alive. That's what positive guilt does. You know, the IRS actually set up a conscience fund a number of years ago where people could send in cash anonymously when they've cheated on their taxes. Did you know that? It's amazing. One guy sent in a letter. He sent in $200 cash. And he said, I cheated on my taxes years ago. And he said, if I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest in later. Yeah. (laughs) Guilt. There is a guilt that is positive. And Jesus draws this healthy guilt out of us. But I want you to see secondly today that Jesus wants us to experience positive guilt that leads to genuine repentance as opposed to pseudo or false repentance. The Bible says this woman had a bad reputation in town. Everybody knew that she was a sinner, had broken God's laws. The text is not explicit, but it's implied that she was a prostitute. She sobbed these tears. She anointed Jesus' feet with this pungent perfume. She let her hair down in public, which was really, would have made everybody kind of feel awkward because that's just something that respectable women didn't do in this particular culture. And then she dried Jesus' feet with her hair and kissed his feet. Now, I want you to notice here Simon the Pharisee's reaction to this. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, Jesus knew in this moment, he wasn't oblivious to what was going on in the room. He knew his reputation was being trashed. He knew people were whispering and you know, wondering what's going on here. And yet, he didn't belittle the woman. He didn't shame her or pull away from her. On the contrary, he accepted this affection and gave her dignity and spoke positively about her. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman And said to Simon, notice the body posturing of Jesus. He turned toward the woman. So he's looking at the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. By the way, that was a diss of Jesus that Simon had done. It was just customary in the culture, walking on these dusty roads with your sandaled feet, that you gave people water and a towel to wash And usually a servant performed that or perhaps a family member. 
But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. In that culture and still in many Middle Eastern and in Italian cultures today and many Mediterranean cultures, it's customary to give a kiss or maybe a kiss on both cheeks. That's just what you do in the culture. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. Again, a cultural thing. It was customary because when people had been through the heat of the day and all, uh, you know, it was customary to put a little drop or two of oil, usually very fragrant. It would be almost like we would think of as cologne today, uh, on their forehead as they came in. It was meant to be kind of a refreshing thing. But she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Now, I want you to listen very closely. God does not want us to feel guilt and then just wallow in that guilt. In fact, can I tell you? If you are found to be wallowing in your guilt and you're just being ground down by that guilt, it sounds to me like that's the enemy condemning you. Big difference between condemnation and conviction. Listen closely. God is into conviction. The devil is into condemnation. He doesn't want us, God doesn't want us just to wallow in our guilt. He wants us to be properly convicted by our guilt and then to act positively to do something about it. He wants us to repent. And yet I believe repentance is greatly misunderstood. There are three words I want to give you, three ideas that I believe describe biblically what repentance is. First word, conviction. Conviction. I was wrong. I am guilty. I've broken God's standard. I've done something God said not to do. Or I've failed to do something that God said we should do. I am guilty. I've sinned against God and others. The second word is contrition. I don't just acknowledge that I'm wrong. I'm genuinely sorry. I'm really broken over my sin. I'm contrite about it. My heart is broken over it. And the third word is change. Conviction, contrition, change. I need to have a heart attitude that I'm going to quit rebelling against God and turn and begin to do his will. The Greek word translated repentance is metanoia. Compound word, meta, which means change. Noia, from the word nous, which is the word for the mind. P repentance etymologically means that we change our mind. But it also means that we do a 180. We're going this way, we begin to go this way. Or we're going this way and we begin to go this way. We change our behavior. And if you call it repentance, but it doesn't revolve involve a, a change, then I question the genuineness of it. Now, 
it's obvious from this context that this woman intended to truly repent, to truly change, because she poured out all of her perfume, and that perfume was an important tool in her trade. She was announcing from this point on, I will never be the same again. Now, let me ask you a personal question. When did Christ first invade your life in that way? Has it happened to you? Have you ever had that conviction that I've broken God's laws? Did it break your heart when you realized that? And then did you say, God, by your power, I want to change this behavior? That is the most transformational thing that can ever happen to a person. The first time I remember truly repenting was as a teenager, as a young teenager, feeling totally crushed, broken, heartsick over my sin, realizing I am a sinner. I recognize that as a teenager. And I remember feeling so sorry for my sin. I've offended a holy God. And I said, God, by your grace, I want to change this. Paul describes repentance in 2 Corinthians 7. Listen to what he writes. Yet now I am happy, he says to the Corinthians, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Now focus in on this next statement. Godly sorrow brings repentance, which leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And then he goes on to talk about their changed behavior, how their repentance was real because he sees the change in them. So in other words, it's not repentance say, oh God, I used profanity. Oh God, I indulged in pornography. Oh God, I was insensitive to my spouse. Oh God, I have been mean to my employees. Oh, God, I regularly get drunk, and you know what? I know I'm going to do it all over again, so hey, thanks for your forgiveness, big guy in the sky. I know that's your job. You're good at that. That's not a broken heart over sin. That's indulgence. That's blowing smoke in God's face. That's dissing God. True conviction and contrition means that I'm crushed by the weight of my sin. I'm literally brokenhearted over it. And I want to change by God's grace. It involves an honest effort to change. It's not perfection, but it is a change of direction. And the truth of the matter is, some of you listening to me right now, you need to pour out your alabaster jar. You need to delete some phone numbers from your phone. You need to put a monitoring system on your computer. You need to eliminate some of those dates that are on your calendar right now, some of you. You need to pour out the contents that are in your cabinet. And that would be an indication, wow, this is more than pseudo-repentance. God has given genuine repentance here. And this person intends to obey God. 
The third thing I want you to see is that Jesus wants us to experience positive guilt that leads to genuine repentance, which results in total forgiveness. Oh, now this is where it gets really exciting. Total forgiveness. Jesus said to this woman in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And I hope you're listening carefully right now because there's all kinds of blessings and gifts and abundance that God can put in our lives. But hear me carefully. There is never a greater blessing God ever gives than the forgiveness of sins. If you want to thank God for something, thank him for that. That's the greatest blessing God ever brings into a person's life. Because only God can truly forgive sins and wash them away. Paul writes in Romans 4, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man or woman whose sin the Lord will never count against them. We've offended Christ. We've acted selfishly. We've disobeyed him. And when he comes... We come to him for forgiveness. He says, I understand. I forgive you. And I will never hold that against you again. Jeremiah the prophet writes, as God speaks through him, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. To me, one of the most glorious things of all, and this church, another reason I love it so much, is that it's just filled with these redemption stories. It's filled with stories of people. So many of us have just let God down in a major way, and yet as we turned in repentance, God has forgiven and restored and written a new story. Hallelujah. It's just like Simon Peter. This closest disciple, this, one of the inner three disciples to Jesus, along with James and John. And yet, he denied that he even knew Jesus. And as Jesus walked by on the night of his arrest, Simon Peter was struck with guilt at his denial of Christ. He, he, he was just heartsick and broken over it. And Scripture says that he went out and he wept bitterly. But his guilt, listen, listen to this, his guilt led him to change, to repentance, to godly sorrow. And he came back to Christ. Less than two months later, Simon Peter is the primary spokesman at the beginning of the church. You know why? Because God's grace is truly amazing. And I simply want to say to you today, I don't know who you are, how, uh, what's going on in your life. I don't know if you feel guilt, toxic, negative, destructive, positive, otherwise, but I do know this. You may be a great sinner, but God is a great Savior. Jesus is a great Savior. And he can forgive any sin, no matter how heinous, as long as you truly come to him in repentance. Oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a gift God gives to those who come to him with a broken heart, crushed over their sin. There's one final thing I want us to consider and that is Jesus wants us to experience positive guilt that leads to genuine repentance, which results in total forgiveness and leads, get this part now, leads to inner peace. 
I've never met the woman or man or young person yet who's not looking for inner peace. People will pay almost anything to find that kind of peace and, under, and satisfaction in life, to find a feeling of tranquility. I've listened to some of the wealthiest people Multi, multi, multi millionaires tell me they're absolutely miserable. And I think, how can that be? Because many of us who don't have that, that many material things, we think, boy, if I just had that, I'd never have another bad day in my life. Talk to some people, some people who are wealthy, and they'll tell you, I'm miserable. Because wealth can't make you happy. It's the inner peace you're searching for. That's what God wants to give you today. That's what Jesus died on the cross to bring you along with the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He wants to bring peace into your life today. Now, how could this woman do that? Notice what is said here in verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. How can that be? How could a woman who had lived a, a life apart from God, wh whatever the sin was, how could she go in peace? I think there are two reasons today as we wrap up. First, she could go in peace because she knew her sins were forgiven. How did she know, pastor? Did she have a euphoric feeling? Did she have a tingling feeling in her spine? Did she have goosebumps? I doubt it, possible, but that's irrelevant. She knew her sins were forgiven because Jesus had promised that. And God cannot lie. How do you and I know our sins are forgiven? When we've broken God's laws in the past, we may or may not have euphoric feelings, that really doesn't matter. The reason we know our sins are forgiven is because God has promised that he will forgive them when we come to him in repentance. In Acts chapter two, when Peter and the other believers were sharing their faith and Peter preached that powerful message on the day of Pentecost, you remember what the people said? They said, what should we do? And here's Peter's bold answer. Here it is. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. God says, look, turn to me in repentance. Demonstrate that trust in me by being baptized into me as a public declaration in obedience to his command. And your sins will be forgiven. God has promised that. Have you taken him at his word? He never lies. He always keeps his promises. You say, but Pastor Rex, you don't understand. You see, I did that years ago, but I've done a lot of bad things since then. Well, that's why God's promise is even more amazing. 
Because you see, he gives this guarantee. As we trust in the blood of Christ, he continues to cleanse us. 1 John 1 reads, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We know we're forgiven because the Lord has promised it. But finally, we can leave in peace. This woman could go out of that encounter in peace, and we can live with this inner peace that passes understanding, secondly, because her life was going to be different. She wasn't going to go back to that old way of using that perfume to entice and sweeten the bed. That old way of life was turmoil. She was now going to follow Christ in obedience, and there's something about a life of obedience that brings peace. There's something about a life of obedience that brings peace. The evangelist Ralph Bell tells a homey story that I've always been fond of. He tells about a little boy, Johnny, little girl, Sally. They were brother and sister, and they went to spend a few days with their grandparents. And little Johnny made a makeshift slingshot that he tried to use, but boy, he was a bad shot. He couldn't hit any of his targets as he walked through the woods and shot these pebbles at trees and stones, but he, he couldn't hit a thing. And finally, a bit frustrated, he wandered back into the barnyard and he saw his grandmother's prized duck. And just on a whim, he took aim with a rock at that duck and hit the duck and killed it. He was horrified. It was his grandmother's duck. He looked all around in a panic and saw that no one was watching except his sister Sally was watching from the corner of the house. She saw everything. Well, he quickly, he hid that duck under the wood pile and just tried to act like nothing had happened, didn't know what to do. But at lunch that day, after lunch, his grandmother said, well, I'd like for Sally to help me with the dishes. She said, oh, no, Grandma, Johnny said he would love to help with the dishes, didn't you, Johnny? And then she whispered, remember the duck. <laughs> and so Johnny helped with the dishes while Sally played outside. Later in the afternoon, Grandpa said that he'd like to take both kids uh, uh, fishing, and he would love to do that. He knew that Johnny loved to fish, but Sally... Uh, Sally seemed excited too, but grandma said, well, no, really, that'd be great, but I'd like for Sally to help me prepare supper tonight. And Sally piped up and said, no, it's already been decided. Johnny would love to help with supper, wouldn't you, Johnny? And then she whispered, remember the duck. And so Johnny helped with her chores and his while she went fishing with grandpa. And after two days of this, Johnny was utterly miserable. Finally, he broke down crying, went to his grandmother and confessed everything. And she pulled him up close and said, Johnny, I was watching from the kitchen window. I saw everything that happened. I've known it all, all this time. I just wondered, and I forgive you, of course, but I just wondered how long you were going to let Sally make a slave of you. And here's my concern for some of you listening right now. 
You have things from your past that are causing all this destructive guilt. And you're ground down by it. Deeds done in darkness and the guilt still haunts you today. My question is, how long are you going to let Satan make a slave out of you? Bring that to Jesus. That's why he died. He will forgive you as you come to him with sorrow in your heart and say, Lord, I give it all to you. He will wash it away. He will make you new, forgive all of your sin, and he will give you an inner peace that you can take with you all through the day. Is that something you need to do today? Let's go to God in prayer for just a moment. I want to ask you right where you are, if you have something that you need to confess to God, I want to ask you to take it to him right now and say, Lord, I am so sorry. I am so broken over this. And you know how I've been suffering for it. You know the anguish in my heart and soul. It's time I quit letting Satan make a slave of me. Lord, I confess this to you. I come clean. And I want by your power to change. To never be the same because of your power in my life. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for setting me free. And thank you for the change that you bring. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.